0: Log Talk Radio Log Talk Radio Live from Los Angeles, the Win Without Competing Show with Dr. Arlene Barrow, Career Coach One. And author of Win Without Competing. Now, here's Dr. Arlene. Thank you, Virgil. Welcome to my show. In tough economic times, it is especially important to implement my right fit method, which will enable you to win without competing in your career and in your life. Before I introduce today's guest, I want to tell you about a great book I recently read, The In and Us, by Anne Edwards and Stephen Citron. Celebrity biographer Anne Edwards was a guest on my show on April 1st, and her husband, Stephen Citron, who is an authority on musicals, will be my guest on May 27th. They are a fascinating couple. The Inn and Us takes place in the Berkshire Hills of Massachusetts near the Tanglewood Music Festival. Straight from Manhattan, Stephen buys a huge farmhouse built in 1847, which he turns into a country inn with a Parisian menu. It is here that he met and fell in love with Anne who moves into the inn. As a, which will make you laugh out loud. One guest brought an axe to the inn. Yes, I said axe. And left it on his pillow when he departed. And, of course, Stephen, who, is an ex, who has extremely high standards, would only serve marron glace, which is cooked chestnuts, with a sauce with vanilla ice cream only. He told a guest who requested chocolate ice cream he would get sick if he ate the marron glace with chocolate ice cream. I checked with Stephen. Apparently, this is not necessarily the case, but Stephen said it wouldn't taste good. The guest, after hearing he could not get his chocolate ice cream, promptly walked out and then this Norman Mailer and Leonard Bernstein let me know your thoughts about the in and us after you read it Stephen has mastered the right fit method without even knowing it now listen to learn about my right fit method from today's interview my guest is Jan F. Constantine general counsel for the Authors Guild, who won a $125 million settlement in Authors Guild et al. versus Google, Inc. Ms. Constantine, a distinguished intellectual property law attorney, led the class action suit against Google to a landmark decision to protect authors' whose works are available on the Internet. Throughout her career, Jan has established legal precedents as Senior Vice President at News Corp., Deputy General Counsel for Macmillan, and Assistant Attorney of New York City's Eastern District. When she is not performing as a lawyer, Jan performs cabaret at various venues in New York City, and serves on several not-for-profit boards. As an author and member of the Authors Guild, it gives me great pleasure, Jan, to welcome you to Win Without Competing. Thank you very much, uh, Dr. Arlene. It's a pleasure to be here. I am truly fascinated that you are a lawyer during the day and a cabaret singer at night. Take us back to your childhood and tell us about the roots of this duality.
1: Well, I think if I, um, I have to go very far back to when I was very young, and I always wanted to be an actress. I loved Broadway. I grew up in the New York suburbs in Westchester, and I would go with my parents and grandparents to Broadway shows a lot, and I thought that this would be a terrific career for me, and we're talking elementary school and uh, junior high school, but I realized with the competition that this was a very hard career, and you had to be really, really good at what you did, and I wasn't that confident that I was going to make the grade, so to speak. So I ended up uh, going to college and going to law school by default and realized that Being a lawyer was the next best thing to being an actress, a litigator, because you could go and you could perform before a judge and a jury, and you actually got paid. You didn't have to audition. Okay. It seemed like a logical step for me, and um, I I don't look back. But um, there was a point in time when I said, look, I don't have, All that many more years left, and I really should follow my heart. And so I started um, singing, uh, took a class in cabaret performance, and became a cabaret singer also. So if you set your mind to it, you can do everything. You can reinvent yourself at any point in time.
0: Let's step back to uh, your college years. You're a graduate of Smith College. Why did you select Smith? Well, I, I was an unusual person
1: when I was in high school, and I had um, did very well. I went to a public high school, and it was a co-ed high school, and I was very popular, and I dated a lot, and I felt that I had succeeded in this large uh, public high school environment. And when it came down to picking a college, I came down to Cornell, which to me would have been a similar experience than that to what I had, and Smith College, and that would have been about as foreign an experience as anything that I could have even imagined. So I thought I would challenge myself and um, pick the least likely place that I uh, would be comfortable in. And, well, can we, can we, uh, I knew it was a good school, and I knew I'd get yeah. a good education, but in terms of social life and Other experiences, I thought, well, this would be a real um, eye-awakener and challenge,
0: so I chose Smith. Can we step back? I like the sentence that you said about feeling not comfortable. You know, most people select things based on their comfort level. I think it's very interesting that you selected Smith because you thought it would shake up your comfort level. Can we explore that a bit further? Well, I've
1: always been a nonconformist, and I didn't like to follow the crowd even back then, and um, I was always putting um, hurdles in front of myself to see whether I could jump them, and this was uh, another hurdle, whether I could be happy in an environment where it was a single-sex school and that um, the social life was, you had to work for it because you were in the middle of nowhere in um, New England in a, in a town or a city. Northampton was it a little nothing, but without a car and without um, knowing anybody else there, I thought that this would really be, if I could, could, can, could succeed here, I could, could see, uh, succeed anywhere. And I had a very good time. So I would just, you
0: say that throughout your life you keep
1: raising the bar higher and higher? I think I do, and cabaret singing, um, not to skip ahead too much, but that is raising the bar about as high as you could go, because you're on a stage in front of people, you are performing, um, and you are basically out there with no protection except for maybe some makeup and um, lights, and uh, you are out there to be criticized and to be judged by people who know you and people who don't know you, and it's about as... Um, exposed
0: as you could get, and I'm still doing it. What I think is interesting, and we'll explore further later um, in terms of the cabaret singing, that you're raising the bar higher and higher. You're focusing in on how to change yourself. And through this process, I think that we will see at the end of the show A woman who wins without competing. But I don't want to say, I don't want to jump too far ahead because I want to save some of the interesting things you did in terms of your career for a a little bit later. Now, you also met Julie Nixon while at Smith. How did that come about? Well, Julie and I
1: were uh, part of an organization at Smith called Gold Key. And uh, what that is at Smith, and I think many colleges have it, is when you are a freshman, you are um, to escort, you're assigned a slot of time during the week when you escort pre-freshmen, people who are interested in coming to the college, uh, on tours of the college. And Julie and I were in the same class, and we were, um, I think it was Tuesday from 2 to 4, And it was only the two of us, and we would be assigned people as they came in to show them around the campus. And I uh, was coming from my gym class, and we had to wear very strange-looking uniforms. Our class, the uniform was red, and they were short and um, not particularly clean. And they weren't I not particularly clean, the uniforms? Well, it, I came after my gym class, so depending on what I was doing that period... Oh, I see what you're saying. ...it was rumpled, okay. and um, <laughs> not, right. I wasn't quaffed, and I wasn't made up, and I was pretty rumpled. And Julie Nixon, on the other hand, was proper and prim, with a Peter Pan collar, white blouse, and a pin, and um, she looked like she had just come out of... Um, Ann Teller's storeroom window. Right. Yes. She was flawless looking, is was what you She was flawless and v- very articulate. And we, we would talk until the person who was assigned to come in came in. And her father was the president at the time, and my father worked um, on 7th Avenue in the um, garment business. And people would come in, and they would look at her, they'd look at me, and when they were assigned me, their faces would drop. Um, because clearly they would have rather have been taken around the, on a tour by the president's daughter, but um, that how was you, my. How did you feel about that, Jan? Well, I thought it was kind of funny because I probably would have felt the same way if I were in their shoes too. But frankly, I probably gave a better tour than she did. I was much more animated and um, enthusiastic. So, and my my acting skills probably came out a bit at that point.
0: Okay. But it it didn't bother me. I thought it was amusing. At what point did you decide to uh, apply for and go to law school? Well, this, too, was kind of a a default
1: decision. I was a senior, and I was an American studies major, and um, a professor of mine, Stanley Elkin, was very prominent, and he also taught at graduate school at Brandeis University. And he said uh, that he would like me to study under him at Brandeis, but made a condition that I finish my classroom attendance there because the person who he had invited to do it the year before had gotten married and uh, did not fulfill her commitment. And I was uh, about to be engaged to uh, someone who went to Williams, and it was two years older than I at Harvard Law School at the time, and I knew he wanted to go to work for the government in Washington. So I knew that I couldn't fulfill that commitment on campus, so I did not want to let him down. Therefore, I had to make a decision quickly what to do instead. So it seemed that law school was a way of deferring the inevitable, um, since I hadn't decided what I wanted to do and I applied to law schools in Boston, and I ended up going to Boston University Law School, and my uh, new husband at the time was in his last year at Harvard Law School.
0: And then I had an epiphany. I I actually liked it. Yeah, that's what I wanted to get at. Um, And you liked it. Would you say that you started to feel passionate because your career really illustrates an attorney who is very passionate about what she does. Well, you don't get to law
1: school, and any any of your listeners who are lawyers know that law school isn't a place where you really learn a lot of passion, especially your first year.
0: Everything, Everything is
1: very tedious, and you're studying night and day, and the concepts are pretty foreign to you. And other than, a course, like constitutional law or sometimes criminal law, you're dealing with um, mundane things like contracts, torts, and um, procedure. And all of this is very critical to the law, but it is not very sexy. All right. So you don't... But you liked it. I liked it. I liked the um, thought processes behind it. I liked the logic to it. And I liked um, the challenge, again, that uh, uh, law posed because it was a totally different way of looking at things than liberal arts where I had graduated.
0: Well, let's return a bit later to see when you started to feel the passion about what your career um, put you into, so to speak. I think I started
1: getting passionate about litigation my third year when I, oh. I had transferred to Washington at the National Law Center at George Washington University because my husband uh, worked for the National Labor Relations Board and I took a clinical law course in um, uh, at Georgetown University and part of the course was actually representing clients in small claims court and landlord-tenant court. And that was when I got the litigator bug and realized that I had an aptitude for acting and um, performing and that this was uh, exactly what a litigator needed to have when um, doing uh, his or her profession. And I had clients, and I represented them before a judge, and I um, really enjoyed that, and I realized that a litigator's life was something that I would really want to do.
0: After you were graduated from law school, you entered the non-profit, not-for-profit sector or the non-profit sector. Tell us about that. Well, I actually worked for the government
1: um, going to... Uh, George Washington Law School, um, I had a lot of occasion. Actually, I was down there during Watergate, so that was a very exciting time, and I had occasion to um, work for government agencies, and my first job after law school was working for the Federal Trade Commission, where we were assigned. I was put in uh, the Special Projects Division, and what we did was rulemaking, and we devised several rules and then we went around the um, country holding hearings on the rules and then we um, wrote them and we put them through the uh, process and some of them got passed and some of them didn't. Uh, one of the rules I worked on was the um, uh, special rule for credit practices and there was a funeral practices rule. And uh, vocational school rule. What the
0: funeral was, practices rule?
1: Well, uh, that rule was uh, there were a lot of complaints before the Federal Trade Commission that when people were um, very depressed when their family or member had uh, died, and that uh, funeral directors took advantage of them and they put in front of them a package. Uh, that was all bundled together, and they signed an exorbitant contract, which included limousines and um, flowers and obituaries and uh, all sorts of things that they may or may not have wanted to sign up for. And the funeral rule was basically enabled the um, person uh, to decide whether they wanted flowers, whether they wanted a limo, whether they wanted everything was separately set forth, and they could check to see what they wanted, and then the funeral director would have to actually price it accordingly, so there weren't any quote packages that they were forced down their throat. Um, and that rule was very successful, and now all uh, funeral homes have this rule, and the contracts you see are as a result of, from uh, of
0: the rule, so this would vary from state to state. Then, Jan. Well, it was a federal rule which oh. was um, promulgated by the Federal Trade Commission.
1: So all the states would have to um,
0: oh, so comply that's with terrific. It. That's yes, very good that was, for our listeners. It was exciting. To know.
1: We we actually spoke and held hearings in Chicago, and Washington, and New York on this rule, and we spoke to many funeral d- funeral directors, and um, we we really um interviewed a lot of people who were in um c- consumers i guess you would call them of of these uh funeral homes and i think that was a i'm very proud of that i think that to this day is a benefit to a lot of consumers
0: absolutely especially uh, during these times when people don't have lots and lots of money, especially for a funeral. I think that's terrific what you just described. Going further, you decided to leave the government work. What prompted you to do that? I know that you worked for how many years was it? Well, I was at
1: the FTC for uh, about five years, and then after that I went to work for the U.S. Attorney's Office in the Eastern District of New York. And that was um, a great experience for me. I did that for five years, and I was deputy general counsel for the last two of the five years. And I actually handled um, 44 cases involving people who had received the swine flu uh, vaccination, and there were repercussions, and we handled this before the uh, trial judges and it was an interesting time and now the swine flu has reared its ugly head again.
0: What um, would you say that you learned from that early experience? Well, I've learned that I really love litigation because when you're <laughs> an assistant U.S.
1: attorney, it's like throwing you into the water and you can't swim. You have to do everything. You don't have the luxury of a huge support staff that you do at a law firm. So you have to do your own Xeroxing. You have to put your papers together you have to serve the papers yourself you have to argue all the cases yourself you have to do all the research yourself and um, nobody's there really to hold your hand this is
0: so evil. you were a one woman team then well
1: I mean we had I was in the civil division and where there were several of us but we all had a huge caseload and nobody had the luxury of helping somebody else and uh, while there were supervisors and I as deputy chief was a supervisor myself, it was pretty much you were out there, and um, it was an incredibly um, interesting and exciting time of my life, and I really um, was glad. I learned a lot from it, and but all good things must come to an end. And after five years, which was a pretty long ten tenure for someone in the U.S. Attorney's office, I decided that it was time to do something else. And I never wanted to work for a law firm. Um, I never did work for a law firm. I thought that this wasn't something I would like. I didn't think that I would like carrying somebody's briefcase for the early years I wanted because I had had my own autonomy in handling cases. So I thought, well, the private sector would be a good thing to do. And I thought long and hard about what kinds of jobs I would want. And I decided that it couldn't be anything that I didn't really use myself or believe in. So I I wouldn't want to work for a munitions company or even a a drug company for that matter. And I thought, well, books are something I really love, and I think I would be happy working in a company that uh, was a book publisher. So I had heard from a friend that... McMillan was looking for an in-house litigator to handle cases uh, actually in-house. This was a new idea because usually you hired outside counsel. But I felt that because I was an assistant U.S. attorney, that this would be a perfect opportunity for me to go into a private company and handle cases like I had handled for the government. So I applied for it and... Um, I got the job. Let's step back a little
0: bit. I think you did a very careful um, crafting of a blueprint of the right fit job for yourself when you left the government and you sought out the Macmillan position. Would you say that's a correct description? I think that's right.
1: At this point, I had... um, I I really, you know, had thought about what I wanted to do, and it was time to leave the government and uh, do something else. And um, I had two kids at the time. I needed to uh, take that into consideration, although I was never a stay-at-home mom, I must say. I never stayed home more than two months because I knew that being uh, home with your kids is really hard work. Going to work is a piece of cake, so I um, decided that I wasn't going to. That wasn't a challenge I was willing to take for me, and I knew that if I wasn't happy staying at home with my kids, that my kids wouldn't be happy. So I decided that going into private a uh, private firm would be the best thing for me. It would be some more money. Um, not as much as if I went into a law firm, but then I think I, the quality of life, as we say, would mm-hmm. it, would be better with two kids, and that my experience at the U.S. Attorney's Office would make me very good at the job that had been um,
0: advertised. So, how many jobs did you apply for when you applied uh, for the McMillan position? Well, that was the only one I had I know just we talked about that. About That's why That's what's very interesting, uh, and that is that many people believe that in order to find the right job, you need to interview and send out resumes that you blast from Burbank to Bombay. What you did was you identified the fit. The next question is, what did you do? to pick, probe, and pitch at the interview to sell yourself. It was not
1: hard to do because the way the job description was, was basically describing me. And it said they wanted somebody with litigation experience that could actually come into the company and handle litigation from soup to nuts, from the beginning when the claim was filed through trial. And that's what I did when I was an assistant U.S. attorney. So, and my salary. De- Dr. Arlene, are you there?
0: Yeah, I'm still there. What okay. happened? Jan? No, I
1: just got a. Um, I just said that I was in the the queue. I got an announcement on my phone, but I guess that was a mistake. Um, so I felt that um, I could sell myself by just saying what I had done and my what I was in the process of doing at the U.S. Attorney's Office. And um, it was a uh, an, an immediate, you've you got the job.
0: On the first interview they said that? Yes. That's amazing. Were you shocked? No, because I really thought that I should get the job. It was the, you know, it, I was the perfect candidate for the job. Okay, um, and you. May, what did you say to them? Because that's what people, I think that's what our listeners need to hear, um, how you actually pitched yourself. I think uh, I, what I said was, here's what your job description is.
1: I have done this, that, and the other thing, which is exactly what your job description is. I am somebody who um, has The experience, but I also uh, can get along with people, and my salary demands, because I worked for the government, are commensurate with your um, offer, your salary offering, and that I would uh, be very happy in this kind of environment. And I also stress the fact that I love books, and that this was exactly the kind of company that I was looking to um, associate with.
0: So you really showed that there was an exquisite fit between you and the employer. That's what it sounds like from what you're describing. I know that, but I also
1: felt it, too. I mean, it, yeah. it wasn't it, this wasn't an act. This was something, it really was the perfect fit, and I was very excited to work for a publishing company.
0: So tell us what happened there. I know you spent nine years. Uh, what exciting things did you do at Macmillan? Well, I... Um, First,
1: I was litigation counsel, but that became very difficult because it wasn't a law firm and there wasn't a lot of support staff. So I managed to become more and more a manager of litigation. Um, We had many, many companies that I was lawyer for. For instance, um, Gump's, which is a retail store out in San Francisco. I did legal work for them. Catherine Gibbs School um, was uh, headquartered at Macmillan, and I was their lawyer. Berlitz, uh, the language program, I was their lawyer as well. And, um, the, uh, and this was all part of Macmillan Publishing Company. During the last few years I was there, there was a takeover battle, and Robert Maxwell uh, took over the company, and that was an interesting um, year and a half where we were back and forth with the Delaware courts um, challenging the takeover, and ultimately, Mr. Maxwell uh, bought the company, and the current the administration left and formed another company k three and I stayed for another year before I left to go to News Corporation.
0: Now, you decided to leave because of the takeover? Why did you decide to No, leave? what
1: basically happened was when um, Mr. Maxwell took over, he decided to hire a, uh, another general counsel. I was the deputy, and um, he hired somebody over me, and I really didn't think that at that point I wanted to work for both the Maxwells or this individual. So I was, uh, I had a severance agreement at that point that I got when the takeover happened. So I was entitled to leave with a year's pay. Um, and I did, and I was very excited about that. I thought I was going to have some time to, to travel and to do some volunteer work. And I made uh, arrangements to visit some friends I had who were living in London and living in Brussels, so I was going to take two weeks. And travel on my own, leave the kids home, leave my husband home, and so I set up this trip. And I heard about um, a job at the News Corporation, which was very similar in terms of structure to Macmillan. It had a lot of different businesses, and uh, Rupert Murdoch was the um, head of it, and. A lawyer who was an outside counsel lawyer who um, I had heard about but did not know, he was a, he was actually a colleague, a partner of a, of a friend of mine, I heard he was going in-house at general counsel. So I thought, well, this would be interesting. Why don't I just apply for this? So I did. I sent my resume to that person, and I said I was a friend of his partner. And I interviewed with him. And then I came back and interviewed with some business people, and they offered me the job. And they said, "When? how soon can you start? And I said, well, I have a two-week trip planned, um, which I don't want to get out of, and I'm going to London. so um, my boss-to-be said, well, we have a company in London. While you're there, why don't you go meet uh, the people at News International? So I actually met with... Uh, several executives in London at the Times newspaper and various other companies uh, before I started working in New York for News Corporation, and that was in 1991. Again, how many
0: jobs did you apply for, Jan? That that was the only one. I I know. That's why I'm enjoying this so much. Again, you knew what the right fit position was, and again, how did you pitch yourself? Well,
1: pretty much the same as I did the last time. I said I work now, I had worked for Macmillan. It had many core companies. I was involved in all of them. I was uh, labor counsel there, so I had an employment law background. I also did publishing, so I had an intellectual property background. And um, I would very much like to work for a news corporation. It had... Companies in Australia, as did Macmillan. It had companies in the UK. Um, And I enjoyed international work and I enjoyed working for conglomerates. And so I sold myself basically on what I had done
0: in the prior job. You were at News Corp for 14 years. Uh, You moved up from Senior Deputy General Counsel to Executive VP and ultimately to Senior VP. What caused you to leave News Corp? Well, my boss,
1: who had been there with me for 14 years, retired. And um, his number two uh, on the corporate side, I was his number two on the litigation side and... uh, was stepped into the job of general counsel. And I knew this. I had no interest in being general counsel. I was not a corporate lawyer, and that wasn't what I had uh, any aspirations for. But he came in, and he said that he was reorganizing the legal department and that my position would be um, eliminated. So I uh, negotiated my separation agreement, and... I left in June of 19... I'm sorry, 2005.
0: All right. And
1: I um, actually had a cabaret performance that I was preparing for that month. So I was really quite busy transitioning my work and rehearsing for this uh, cabaret show. And so I was... You know, it's not fun to leave a job after 14 years, and, you know, there's a, always um, a feeling of loss and, uh, you know, sadness. But again, I was looking forward to taking some time and doing some not-for-profit work. I'm on several boards, so I actually was the acting executive director of one of these not-for-profits because they were looking for to hire an executive director. So I, I did that. Um, even as I was transitioning from uh, news corporation. And I heard about a position at the Authors Guild. Um, someone who I had had lunch with, a friend of mine from another publishing company, told me that uh, my predecessor or my, was looking for um, a replacement because she had gotten a job at another newspaper company. And so it looked like a very interesting job, and I asked her if she would pass along my resume to uh, the people at the Authors Guild. So she did that, and that was, I guess, in about June or July of the year. At this point, I was enjoying my summer and uh, doing odds and ends and rehearsing and um, working at the not-for-profit. So I wasn't in any hurry to get a job. I wasn't really interested in getting a job until the summer was over in any case. So I didn't hear, uh, and I said, well, this is very strange. I'm not sure why I'm not hearing. And I looked on the website, and sure enough, I had a friend who was on the board of directors at the Authors Guild, and he had worked at News Corporation and had transferred over to Fox, and I emailed him, and I said, the executive director isn't returning, um, you know, isn't calling me after I sent my resume to him and i'm wondering why would you mind actually calling him and probing so he got right back to me via email and he said that uh... he spoke to the executive director his friend and um, he anticipated that i would get a call and about two minutes later i got the call and i made an appointment to go in and i said I'm not interested in a full-time job at this point. I'm interested in a part-time job, but I have so much experience that I think I could do part-time what anyone you hired full-time could do, and this seems like a very interesting job, and I would like to um, throw my hat in the ring and apply for the position. So I got a call back the next day, and the executive director said, how about two days a week? And I said, that's great. And I was um, going to a conference in London. I was organizing it, and um, I had already committed to that before I left News Corporation. So I went there in September, and I got a phone call when I was there from the executive director saying, we filed a lawsuit against Google. It's a class action. You'll be working on it when you get to the office. So I started October second, 2005, and the lawsuit was class action lawsuit was one week old and I've been working on it ever since
0: well that's your baby that's my baby before we talk about uh, the the lawsuit again how many jobs did you apply for Jan just that one I know you did it again I mean three in a row here it's amazing I mean I don't know how you know whether you're aware this is a rare uh, event, that three jobs in a row, you applied to one, and you got the each one each time. And I believe that you're doing a stellar job, not just of pitching, but also of managing the process, so that, for example, at the Authors Guild, rather than calling directly, you had a friend call on your behalf which was obviously very helpful to you given that the executive director called you right away. That's
1: true. And I think I was probably, if you looked at my resume, he probably thought, well, she certainly is overqualified to take this job. There's no way we could give her the same salary that she got at News Corporation. And, you know, she's, very senior, and, you know, this, this job is a small not-for-profit. But that's exactly what I was looking for. And, you know, he wouldn't know that. I suppose he would look at the resume and just assume that right. it wouldn't be a good fit, which is why I asked my friend, who did know me very well and also knew the executive director very well, to um, at least make the call. I wasn't anxious to actually start working anyway. I wasn't wasn't like I was uh, looking to get a job at that point. So I did have the luxury of um, you know not needing to work. My severance was uh, still intact, and I had uh,
0: was in kind of enjoying my freedom. I hate to say. Well, that's um, all right. I did want to talk about. Um, The strategy that you used when you uh, negotiated your, what I call, the goodbye package at News Corp., can you give our listeners some suggestions, tips, advice about this? In other words, you don't need to obviously divulge um, amounts of money, but I think that quite often people don't realize what they can negotiate, so that would be extremely helpful if you could share that. Well, remember, I'm a lawyer, and I'm an employment
1: lawyer, among other things, and I was on the side of the company every time they negotiated a separation agreement with one of their employees who they terminated. So I have the advantage of really knowing what everybody else
0: got prior to myself. Well, that's Um, why I'm asking you, because this could really be helpful to people, um, how they should get a little insight themselves, even though they're not going to be in your position, so to speak. Right. Well, the, Maybe they can do some sleuthing around is what I'm suggesting.
1: Well, I think the, the most important thing is not to do anything um, precipitously. It's hard to be fired and to have somebody tell you after 14 years or however many years you work for a company that, you know, uh, all of this um, investment is over. And you're not needed anymore. It's like you know the old shoe, tossing it away. So well, it's like a,
0: it's like a divorce. I expect
1: it is. And so obviously, you're in a you know anybody the the most hardened lawyer is in an emotional state that really requires um, a little step back and and um, distance. So that that's very in, important to know. And um, at my position, you know, having all of the insight into what everyone else got was helpful. Also, I was the one who advised all the people when they were terminating the employees. So I know how it should be done and how it should not be done. And it wasn't really done that well to me, which was interesting. Um, So I took advantage of some of the mistakes that were made to me uh, in terms of things that were said and... um, things that weren't said, which um, were, were helpful, and um, I the, what what they all want to do, the employers, they're not malicious, it's usually f- they do this for a reason, especially in this day and age when you know there's belt tightening, you know it's not personal, and I don't think that mine was personal either. but once you know that there's no going back and that they've made up their mind which is usually the case. You can't talk them out of it. Um, Then you have to look out for yourself and do the best you can. Now, a lot of times you can't do much with the money. It is what it is. They have severance policies, and they stick to those policies. But there are things you can do with respect to continuation of medical benefits, um, outplacement opportunities, which do cost them money and would cost you money, um, to uh, continue allowing you to uh, have have access to computers, to office space, to secretarial assistance, um, and uh, extended salary continuation, so that you can get your medical benefits uh, over time, you're con- you're considered an inactive employee. You're getting your salary not in a lump sum, but you know in a uh,
0: weekly or or. Um... Oh, in order in order to guarantee those benefits. That's right. So there are a lot. Uh, Jan, are you here? I am. Yes. Um, so there are things
1: you can do, but it, again, it's always good to have a specialist or an expert or a lawyer um, advising you. in in this regard, and there are people who've been through this before and who will advise you for it. So I don't recommend everybody just doing this on their own. They really should have some
0: kind of expert advice. Okay, all right. Well, I think that's good advice, that they shouldn't do it on their own, that in itself. And I guess the question is, how do you select the right type of lawyer to work with? How do you know that you have the right fit lawyer? Well, there are many lawyers. Um,
1: if you go to martindale Hubble and you look for employment lawyers in your location and you can go online, you can find people in firms that are reputable that um, you can go to. But usually it's word of mouth. And even now uh, at the Authors Guild, I'm also a partner of my, uh, at a firm, Constantine Cannon. I have people in the human resources areas at News Corp who are referring me people who need assistance in doing this, which I gladly help them for nothing because I know what it's like. So usually there'll be somebody that you know, whether it's a family member or somebody um, that has had this happen to them before, who will recommend someone. And um, it's always good to have somebody who um, trusts the individual and who can recommend them. So I, I think that that's the best way. But if you don't have any, then you can look at these, um, these services that allow you to pick uh, lawyers that, ex- that are experts in specific substantive areas
0: like employment law. All right. Now, the long-awaited landmark decision against Google. Tell us how and why the class action suit evolved as well as, as its significance for authors.
1: Well, originally Google had decided um, to initiate a program with the publishers that uh, enabled certain books to be copied and um, viewed online, and it was with publishers' permission, and that was called the Partner Program. But then two months later, in December of uh, 2004, Google partnered with libraries and started copying books on the shelves of libraries both in copyright and uh, and out of copyright, without asking permission of anyone. The libraries didn't have the copyrights. They just owned the books. So the Authors Guild decided that this was an infringement of the copyright of everybody who had rights in the books that were in the libraries. So they brought a copyright infringement lawsuit based on the fact that even though only what Google referred to as snippets, a few sentences, um, which had the search term embedded in them were sh- were shown, so they claimed that was a fair use. In effect, you had to copy the entire book in order to show snippets. So what Google was doing was copying an entire book, only showing certain parts of the book when a search term came up. But if you copy the entire book, it doesn't matter what you end up showing, you're actually copying the book. So it was a copyright infringement. The publishers brought their own lawsuit a month after the Authors Guild brought a lawsuit, and Google defended it by saying this was fair use, and and, um, we negotiated for two and a half years with Google, and uh, we also had some issues with the publishers that had to be resolved. So it was a three-way negotiation, and the libraries were involved as well, but not at the table. Google was representing their interests because they were partners with Google in that they had entered into a contract with Google to allow Google to uh, copy their books in exchange for receiving a digital copy back from Google. So uh, the negotiations went on for two and a half years, as I said. In October 28, 2008, we settled, which means there was no decision, there was no trial, But the parties agreed that there would be a um, resolution. And Google agreed to pay $45 million to anyone whose books were scanned and copied prior to May 5, 2009. And uh, going forward, Google agreed to put $34.5 million towards a book rights registry That was going to maintain the database uh, and license the use of the books in various business models to Google and to other third parties who wanted to license the books. And it's a very intricate and complicated document with attachments. It's 323 pages. And um, we are in the process of going through a notice period and a comment uh, opposition period, and people, which was just extended, by the way, from May 5th until September 5th. And you can opt out of the class action up until uh, September 5th. If you don't, you're considered part of the class, and the class is authors and publishers of books, that were published prior to January 5th, 2009. So it's basically um, a compensation for people whose books have already been copied, a business model for books that will be copied by Google um, and uh, but are published prior to January 5th of this year. And um, we're hoping that there will be money for books that have been lying dormant in Uh, on the shelves of libraries, out-of-print books that are still in copyright but that are not available for sale anywhere. And this is going to bring new life to some of these books, and they'll be available digitally through a subscription to the universities and uh, public libraries and through uh, consumer purchase online and also a preview where you'll be able to see 20% and uh, an author or publisher will get some percentage of the advertising revenues that Google receives. So it's uh, pretty exciting, but it hasn't it's not over yet. We have to get uh, approval by the court, and there's a fairness hearing that will take place October 7, 2009, at which time the court will read all of the documentation of people who object to it. We'll read the briefs of the lawyers who are in favor of it, and hopefully we'll um, approve the uh, order and this will be
0: reality. Now, how will they figure out how to pay the publishers?
1: Well, is it's going um, work? There is a publisher-author procedure, and um, there will be uh, prices that will be proposed. By Google, they have an algorithm and there will be default prices for various books that range from $1.99 to $29.99 with a mean pricing of $5.99. If a book is out of print and the author has all the rights, the author will get 100% of those revenues. And the author can decide what um, price to put on the book, or he can go with one of the Google prices. It's up to uh, the author. If it's a book, that is in print, then the author and the publisher have to agree that the book stays in the program. Initially, the books will be um, deemed, if they're commercially available, they won't be put in the program. If they're not commercially available, they will be in the program. If they're in the program, you you can remove them from the program, but if they're not in the program, you can put them in. So, so there's who, a lot of control by both the author and the, and the um, publisher.
0: So who should publishers and authors be contacting then, Jan? Well, there's, a, there's, website,
1: and there's a website. There's a
0: website. Okay, what would that website be? It's googlebooksettlement.com.
1: Googlebooksettlement.com. And the website is for everyone, whether you want to be in or not, whether it's in print or out of print, to claim your books. Google will, once you put your name in as author or the name of the book, then all the books that that author has written or a name uh, similar to that author has written will come up. And then the author will check the books that they claim are theirs. Right. And then the registry, when it's up and running, which won't be until after approval, will be able to see who owns what book and all the metadata will be available for people who want to uh, license that book. And the author will have the choice of excluding the book from display uses or including them in the program or removing the book from the program altogether or um, removing them from parts of the program and keeping them in the other parts of the program. And the revenues are split in formulas as set forth in the agreement, or as the contract states if it's an in-print book. So that, uh, and it it also depends on the age of the book. Okay. Older books, the author gets more money for the digital use, and the newer books, it's 50-50 split.
0: All right. So now, um, does a publisher have to do something in terms of contacting the Authors Guild at all?
1: No. What happens is the publisher will take all of its list of books, and there's a process that they can download it as part of an Excel sheet, and they'll claim what books are in print and what books are theirs. But the author will also do that because a book could go out of print. So you want to know who the author is once a book goes out of print. So both the author and the publisher are considered rights holders for books that are in print. And books that are out of print but still in copyright could also be owned still by both author and publisher, or the author could have rights reverted back, and they could own 100% of the book. So there are a lot of permutations uh, that could be uh, resolved by the registry. If there are disputes, the registry can... um, initiate arbitration, and the registry will have the final word. And no money will be given out until it's resolved, all the disputes are
0: resolved. So this is going to be a long process then. Yes, it will. What is the significance of this legal precedent on copyright for other professions, would you say?
1: Well, this is a <clears throat> a very... Um, new and, um, I guess, untried way of dealing with it. It is setting up a registry to deal with the actual maintenance of the data and to actually deal with licenses and be the liaison between Google and other third parties and the rights holder. And it involves foreign Authors and foreign publishers, because although it's only US based and the uses are only in the United States, the books that were in libraries and the books that are going to be copied are by foreign authors and published by foreign publishers. So it's basically a worldwide program that may be the model for other programs in the future in other places. And uh, it's deemed to be a very um, new and different approach to copyright law and register and, and um, administration of copyrights. It's, no, it's not a-, a legislative solution, and it's, right, and it's not a uh, a treaty. It is a class action lawsuit, and uh, it enables. People who do not come forward, um, who uh, are authors of books that are in the database that are out of print, um, it enables Google to utilize these as part of the program. If they don't opt out of the class action, they're deemed to be part of the class, and therefore uh, Google can utilize books without their authorization. And you can't do in copyright, you have to get permission to do anything before you can use any books. But this uh, is a twist to that copyright law.
0: So you're advising then all authors to register on uh, Google Books Is that correct, Jan?
1: Yes. We feel that the $10 million that Google has put into a notice program, telling everyone in the world, putting it in magazines, sending out um, both letters and emails, um, that we feel that there will be a lot of people that will be registering and that there won't be a lot of books out there where nobody comes forward and says, this isn't my book. So we're, we're encouraging everyone who is an author to go to the website and register and say um, which books belong to that author. So that we can contact them and um, get their permission to license the books in ways to other than Google uh, and monetize some of uh, the, the works that haven't been um, in print for many many years.
0: So the uh, so the Authors Guild then will contact those that are registered. Is that correct? Am I understanding that? Well, the
1: Authors Guild is is a representative plaintiff. It's really the registry, which will be run half by authors and half by publishers. And that organization will be the one that will be doing the contacting. But in the meantime, the claims administrator is acting as uh, in the place of the registry until the registry is up and running.
0: So when will the registry be up and running?
1: Well, it can't uh, until the court has approved the settlement.
0: Okay. So we
1: are, um, you know, waiting with bated breath to organize with the publishers a uh, corporate structure. It's going to be a not-for-profit organization. It's going to be based in New York. It will have um, a board of directors that are jointly run by the authors and the publishers. It will have foreign representation from both the publisher and the author community, and we will have advisory committees from all sorts of people who have uh, an interest in uh, having this work. But we can't really get up and running until we have uh, court approval.
0: And when do you anticipate that?
1: Well, the hearing is in October, October 7th, 2009. The judge has 90 days. make a decision. We're hoping that it'll be before the 90 days, but at the latest, it would be January of 2010. And there could be an appeal, so I don't know how long that would take after that. But uh, assuming there isn't an appeal, we would think that the registry would be up and running in January.
0: Okay. Now, your second career, cabaret singer. You talked about, I think you mentioned the course you saw the course advertised, am I correct? Did you mention that early on? I'm not I sure I did,
1: but, but we did I think talk I'm about letting that. the cat
0: out of the bag.
1: Well, I'll, I'll tell you how I got into this Great. business. Um, about four or five years ago, I had two children in college, and my youngest was a sophomore in high school, and she decided she wanted to go to Tasmania, Australia, to um, be a foreign exchange student. So I had all of my kids out of the house, and my husband was working on a very big class action antitrust case. And so I was uh, had some time on my hands, not a lot, but I had seen an article in the newspaper about a cabaret performance workshop that was run for people who were not professionals, but who liked to sing. And the object of it was, for two months, you went to a class once a week, three hours, um, one day a week. And then you would graduate by performing at a cabaret venue in New York City. Uh, And then you could take other classes which were intermediate and advanced and continue uh, to do this. And so I thought, well, wouldn't this be fun? I've sung in choruses and choirs my whole life, but I've never actually sung solo. So I took a class and uh, I did my first gig and I really enjoyed it and I took a few other classes and then it got to the point where I thought, well, now it's time to go professional. So I had a friend in the class who had taken most of the classes with me. Her name, well, she was a lawyer as well and she and I have uh, for the past four or five years been a a duo act and we have done five different shows uh five times each so i guess that's about 25 times right we usually do it in the fall and sometimes uh in the winter or early spring so we don't do this every night and uh, we spend a lot of time preparing because we really do feel that we want to be professional and we sing duets and we sing solos and we usually have a theme our last show was January 8th of this year, and it was Alone Together. And um, we uh, have a ball, and we really enjoy it. And we've, we've sung at uh, Don't Tell Mama's and at, uh, at a place called the Broadway Baby and the Reprise Room and Danny's uh, Skylight and the Duplex down in the village. So we've really enjoyed it, and uh, we continue to do it. Do you um, book yourselves, then? We have a director, and we have an accompanist, and oh. uh, our director usually does the booking.
0: Do you know where, where and when your next venue is so that We're our just, New York City listeners will, can go and see you? Well, that's, very, that's, that's a good
1: plug. But we are just starting to develop our next show. It'll probably be sometime in the fall and we don't know where it's going to be yet. So, um, Is there a way that they can learn about this? Well, I have a website, and I usually have my um, postcards on the website, and it's JanF, as in Frank, Constantine.com. So they can look at the website and see the postcard for the last one, and the
0: next one, as soon as we know, it'll be up. Terrific. Now, your personal life. You're married to uh, attorney Lloyd Constantine. That's right. And I know that this is your second marriage. Can you tell us how all of this came about? Well, Lloyd and I have known each other since I was
1: 18 and he was 19. And he went to Williams with my first husband. And uh, we were friends for many years. And my first husband and I... Uh, separated when we were in Washington he was in worked for the government, and I had just graduated law school and started working for the Federal trade commission and uh a year after we separated, Lloyd came down from New York he worked in New York and said that he gave us a year to get back together and we hadn't gotten back together, but he had always loved me and that um, we should get together and we did. That was about 35 years ago, and we've been together ever since. We got married in um, 1975, I guess it was, and I had three children with him, and my children are Isaac, Sarah, and Elizabeth, and my youngest, Elizabeth, is graduating University of Wisconsin on the 17th of May. Do you
0: have any lawyers?
1: No, I don't. And uh, I think because we are both lawyers, they uh, shied away from being lawyers, and uh, don't blame them a bit. I have a novelist, a writer. I have a, a psychologist. She's going to graduate school at CUNY in clinical psychology, and my youngest wants to go into television. Ah. So, um, no, they're they, about as far away as being lawyers as uh,
0: they could get but I'm proud of all of them. Wonderful. Jan, what advice do you have for people who have not found their passion who are trying to figure out what their next career step should be? I mean, you have found your passion. In fact, you have two passions. You have the law, and you also have the cabaret. So what suggestions do you have? Well, the most important thing is is Don't
1: be discouraged because, remember, you only need to get one job. So uh, you have to know what makes you happy, what makes you tick. And you should really think about what you do best and what you enjoy and how to really focus on selling yourself to that one job or one job area and um i think if if this is a very tough economy, and I was lucky enough not to um, be looking for jobs in this economy, and so you know, I don't want to trivialize it and say it's it's an easy thing to do, but I think you have to believe in yourself and you have to sell yourself, and you have to um convince someone that not only would you be a good employee, but you would be a great employee and you would be a terrific fit with that company. Uh, you also have to be able to reinvent yourself if indeed you do get um, you get terminated. You have to be able to roll with the punches in this environment and you can't um, let it get you down or let it get the best of you. You have to pick yourself up and um start all over again and n- don't get discouraged because there is a job out there for you and you just have to you just have to find it and be motivated and and um it will come and you can't look back you can't say what if i did this what if i had done that you should learn from your mistakes or learn from the decisions that ultimately it turned out were wrong but you should look forward and see how you can uh, avoid doing them again.
0: Well, Jan, I must say this has been a delightful conversation. I really want to thank you for joining me today and for being our win-without-competing woman. Thank you very much. I really enjoyed it. Talk to you soon and look forward to having you back. Thank you. Take care. David B. Opton, CEO and founder of Execunet. Please join me again next Wednesday, May 13th, at 5 p.m. Pacific Daylight Time. My guest will be entrepreneur David B. Opton, who founded Execunet in 1988, the leading Internet-based business network, For senior level executives and professionals with salaries above $150,000. After holding high level human resources executive positions at Sterling Drug International and Xerox Corporation, Mr. Austin left the employee nest and became a highly successful entrepreneur. A note to my listeners. Thank you so much for appreciating my Win Without Competing show. I would love to respond to your questions during my show in a new segment which will air shortly. Please email me at therightfitmethod@winwithoutcompeting.com at or message me via blog talk radio your career and/or personal questions for which my right fit method will have a response. Do let me know whether you would like your name mentioned on air. If your question is presented, we will email you prior to the show. Can't wait to answer your questions. To learn more about my right fit method and how to win without competing, visit winwithoutcompeting.com and drbarrow.com, that's dot com. Email me at drbarrow at winwithoutcompeting.com or call 310-441-5305. Goodbye for now. This is Dr. Arlene, author, Win Without Competing, Career Success, The Right Fit Way. Career Coach One and Founder and CEO, Barrow Global Search, Inc.